Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. As we gather this day, Lord, it is with a heart to be open to you. Lord, we recognise you to be the one who we follow and whom we want to be like. And Lord, we're far short. So God, please, today, Lord, by your spirit and through your word, Jesus, make us more like you, fit for your purpose and for your kingdom. And God's people said, Amen. 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 There'll be a PowerPoint, I think, that's just coming up on the screen. Thank you, June. So, I think that you are now quite well advanced in this series on parables. Am I right? Have you been blessed? That's good. Three of you have, and I'm hoping that the rest will join in by the end. When, when you and Matt contacted myself and said, can you come and can you speak? The series is parables. I thought, brilliant. There's so many wonderful parables that are an absolute joy to talk about. And then they said, these are the ones that are left. And at that particular point, it started to get a little bit more complicated. And so I kind of was given a choice of some fairly tricky ones. This possibly being one of them, although not as bad as the one that Nigel's got to preach on in a few weeks' time, so I feel actually quite privileged in comparison. That'll be a a proper doozer, that one is. Anyway, this one is, I think, absolutely central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus today, as important today as it ever was when the words left Jesus' lips, but also important for us as God's family, as God's church, something corporate as well. As you will have seen with no doubt all of these parables, look, you can see them in all kinds of different ways. What do you see here? Is this a duck or is this a rabbit? I'm guessing that some of you would have instantly seen one or the other. It's it's the same with the parables, isn't it? So very often, so very often, we can interpret them in different ways. I think that's brilliant. I think that's why Jesus taught them in the way that he does. So, whilst I would say that maybe there are some interpretations of the parables that are slightly off-kilter, by and large there are a number of ways to interpret each of these stories of Jesus, and that's what makes them so full of life and so full of fruit for us in our own spiritual walk. You may, for example, have read this parable that we'll be looking at today in the past in a certain way, and today might hear it in a different way. If you do, great. Let's pray that God continues to bring light to us from his word, and that this is a living book. This is something which is not just a one-off read and, and it's done. This is a read it again and again and again, and continue to see God in it. Well, this particular parable, I think, is one where actually the initial just face reading of it and interpreting of it might not be the one that Jesus first meant. I don't know what you see there. It says underneath, I can't unsee Captain Tiny Arm and his baby sidekick Mega Hand. When you have a little look at that, you'll kind of see it a little bit. Disturbing, slightly. Sometimes things are not what they first seem, and I would suggest that possibly in this parable is one of those things. Because in this parable, on initial reading, the the simplest thing to do is to quickly translate the characters into into things that we recognise, that we can get hold of. So clearly, the king in the parable, at least is our initial thought, is God. 
clearly it's God. And, and, well, we can decide on which of of the servants we are, but but clearly that's you or I. Well, look, I'm I'm not going to knock that interpretation entirely, but it has to be said that if that is your approach to this particular parable, you have to do some interpretive kind of somersaults. And I'm not talking about dancing here, I'm talking about hermeneutics. In terms of the, the bits that you get to later in the story, where, where it would appear that, that God sends people to be tortured, uh, and, and it, it begins to get incredibly tricky. Look, I don't particularly want to say that that's not necessarily the interpretive strategy that we need to look at, but I do think that we miss an awful lot if that is the one that we take, and I think probably miss the point of what Jesus was trying to say. So quickly, let's just look at the context. This is part of Jesus' entire big story about what the kingdom of God is like. And as you see from the screen, there's a little bit that you can see, but there's a whole lot that seems to be behind the cloud still. It's not clear. The context of this is that Jesus is talking with his followers who were expecting an incredibly different kingdom. His disciples are still wanting to know what's it going to look like then when we gather the troops and we attack the Romans and we defeat them and we regain our land. What's that going to look like, Jesus? And Jesus, time and time again, refuses to go down that avenue. Says some confusing things to his disciples sometimes, I think, that makes them think, hang on, what we thought just seems to be the last thought that Jesus has got. Instead, Jesus time and time again talks of the kingdom in incredibly different terms. And you will have seen this, no doubt, already in the parables that you've looked at. The kingdom of God is like, says Jesus. I sense some frustration in the disciples when Jesus says that. What they really want is it plain and simple, don't we all? And then Jesus comes up with another simile or metaphor or analogy. The kingdom of God is like, and it just seems so frustrating. Myself and Philippa went on a a marriage enrichment course after we'd been married for 10 years, which is now quite a number of years ago. And one of the things that they were trying to do on the marriage enrichment course was was to say to us, explain in different terms what your feelings are. Explain in different terms something that you're trying to say. Um, and the analogies and, and metaphors came a-flowing. But it sometimes, in doing that, is even more frustrating than plain talking. Can, can you imagine if you'd walked in today and you'd said to someone that you know from the church, how, how are you doing? And they said, well, it's a little bit like, I don't know, a beautiful snowflake drifting down from the heavens filled with hope and expectation, and yet somehow drifting down onto a raging bonfire, where it's extinguished in a moment. How are you? (laughs) There's there's a real sense, I think, of, of frustration in the disciples when they just want the plain answer and still are not getting it, because the kingdom of God is like... It's like all kinds of things. Jesus is comparing his kingdom to things that they can kind of get a grasp of. Well, at the beginning of this particular chapter, the true colours show. Because the question that actually is asked is, who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom then, Jesus? Ooh, there we go. 
Because in this hierarchy, in the kingdom that they're imagining, with commanders and various different ranks of soldiers all the way down, there very much is a line of control and power and decision-making. So who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom that you're on about Jesus? Jesus talks to them about the least, the marginalised, the ones that are forgotten very often. He finds a child and he brings a child into their midst. Like this child, the humility of this child. That's what you need. And then he tells this parable, which I'll not steal, or it might have already been spoken on, about the lost sheep, about this, the nature of God's kingdom, being that actually we look for the ones rather than concentrate on the 99s. That there's something about the nature of God that's reflected in his kingdom in that, which is so centrally important. And then he goes on to talk about the gathering of those that are together. It's interesting the various different translations of this particular chapter. In the one that we heard read just then, the NIV, it talks about sisters and brothers. In the NRSV, it actually just nails it down to members of the church. They're not just doing that because they want to be gender neutral. They're doing that because there is a sense in this passage that Jesus is talking about the church. What if someone in the church sins against me? What do I do then? And Jesus speaks about the right processes to go through, about going to whoever it is that has wronged you, and to talk to them. And if if you can't find agreement, maybe just to take a couple of other folks who pastorally will be there and say, guys, we're family here. We're not demonstrating the love, the high standard of love that God has set for his community. Let's sort this out together. And then right the way through to if the church and the individual that's wronged doesn't get on, then the individual is what sometimes is being called excommunicated, rather unhelpfully, I think, because of the connotations. It's put to one side, but with a view to them recognising the need to be part of this living community and wanting to be reconciled so that they can again be part of it. That's, That's the context where this particular parable then hits home. So what do we see? Well, in the words that have been written, what we see is Peter asking what he feels is a fairly generous question. I love this. Just a couple of chapters before, Peter's being called a stumbling block by Jesus. I mean, when you then think about what Jesus says about stumbling blocks in this chapter, that's, that's pretty major. So Peter is wanting to be generous in his questioning to Jesus. How many times should I forgive a member of the church? Says Peter, my sister and my brother. How many times? Seven? In a, obviously that's ridiculous, but, you know, I'm happy to be generous. Seven? And Jesus comes back with a, not seven, Peter's probably half thinking maybe it's less than that. Not seven. Seventy-seven. Or, depending on your translation, seventy times seven. In other words, an unlimited amount of forgiveness should you offer to your sisters and brothers, the members of the church. Now that sounds good when it's spoken from the preacher at the front on a Sunday. But actually, on Monday morning, when you wake up, and there is something that has not gone well in your relationship with one of your sisters and brothers, 
this is something that, that rings in our ears. Is it okay just to leave it and hope that it just kind of, like, I don't know, we forget about it? Is it okay to maybe offer forgiveness for that once, but frankly, they're pushing the luck? Is that okay to sit on a grudge, to effectively say, well, I don't want anything to do with you, to shun that person in the life of the church? Look, what Jesus is saying is that is not good enough. The kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is not like the, the unforgiving, but the forgiving. In fact, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a king who forgives his servant his debt. As soon as he says those words, I'll guarantee that the disciples and probably the first readers of this gospel would have related that to the king not being God, but the king being Herod. The one, the example of a king that they knew. The dictator that was unreasonable. The one who basically was unlikely to forgive anyone's debt anything because he'd prefer just for them to instead go to the gallows, to the cross, at least to the dungeons. This is the image of the king. Like the king who forgives his servant his debt. The debt that is spoken of here is just massive. It talks about 10,000 talents. One talent was the equivalent of about 15 years Labourer's wage. One talent. So 10,000 talents, what Jesus is saying, almost with a sense of exaggeration and possibly slight irony as the story goes on, is that this is an insurmountable amount of money that is owed to the king by his servant. And the servant is almost certainly like the middleman. So the way that it would work in first century Palestine was that the king, the ruler, would have a number of folks who would effectively be in charge of his land and would collect rent, tax collectors, would collect rent from the peasant farmers, from the tenant farmers, for him. And this group of middle servants had a slightly higher status than the tenant farmers, though nowhere close to the ruling authorities, the king. And they collect up the rent, and many of them would do so keeping a good amount of it for themselves. They'd line their own pockets, they'd live a life of luxury off what they were collecting from sometimes their countrymen, the tenant farmers. But once in a while, the king would draw in this group to reckon up. He'd draw them in to collect what was owed him. And it would appear that this particular servant of the king owed more than can reasonably even be conceived of, let alone paid back. The king is not happy when it seems that this money is not forthcoming, possibly unsurprisingly. And the servant's response is just, oh my word, how on earth am I ever going to get this back? The king talks about selling him, the, the, the servant and the servant's family and the servant's household, into slavery. No longer with this status in society, but instead a slave of someone else, probably a low-class slave that would be a, a labourer or um, working in the fields. And this is not something that the servant's happy with, so down on his knees he goes and pleads, please, please, I can't pay this back. 
and the king. The king forgives him. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. What an incredible picture. Had that been the point, of course, that the parable ends, then it's one of these things where actually we all breathe easy and go, ah, this is wonderful. We like the sound of this. But of course it goes on. Because then the servant goes out and finds one of these tenant farmers, one of, like, his servants, grabs him and demands what is less than a year's wage. Still a fair amount of money, but what is less than a year's wage of debt from him. Having literally just been... just being absolved of a, a debt that is bigger than he could ever afford to pay, he then goes and demands, demands a much smaller amount from one of his servants. His servant falls on his knees and pleads. But no, the response to throw that labourer into prison. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. It's unsurprising that word got back to the king. And the king then called his servant in again. And at this particular point, we suddenly see where this story's going. The parable opens up before us. The, the lack of parity with how people have been dealt with. The, the, the huge level of unforgiveness that has been shown by this servant to the labourer compared to the huge amount of forgiveness that's been demonstrated by the king for his servant. It doesn't add up. The king is not happy. And so there are consequences. The king in this story will do what I imagine the listeners would have expected Herod to do. Throw him into prison until he can pay back what he can. Torture was part of what it would be like in Roman prisons in that era. And of course, he couldn't ever hope, he couldn't ever hope to pay back what he owed. This was going to be, for as long as he could survive it, the rest of his life. And then, we have this punchline. Like that, in a similar kind of way, will your Heavenly Father deal with each of you if you don't forgive the members of your church, your brothers and your sisters? whoa, if that doesn't pack a punch, I don't know what does. Right. The meaning. At this particular point, I'm tempted, and for, no doubt, purposes of time of this service and because of your roast dinners, you'll be pleased if that was the end of it. I would be tempted to say, right, go home and think about what that means for you. Because Jesus didn't do what I did. Me being far less wise than Jesus, I'll take a different tack and spend another few minutes just teasing out what this might mean for us. But please, will you go home and will you pray based on that? What God is speaking to you about. Because this could be incredibly individual for each of us. But let me just suggest two ways that we can look at this. Look, I do think that when we read the parables of Jesus, there is something that speaks to us as individual followers of Jesus in all kinds of different ways. First and foremost, I think that absolutely we should be recognising 
that the kingdom of God is like this story, but that the kingdom of God, the king of the kingdom, has forgiven us a debt that we can't possibly ever afford to repay. Look, there is something about this story, of course, which speaks of God's incredible grace and incredible mercy for each of us. If we don't recognise that, then I think we really do miss the point. But equally, I think, as individuals, we can sometimes hide behind that. This story stops in our minds with God's grace and God's outrageous forgiveness for each of us. So let's read the next bit. Hold your horses. Because I think that actually as individuals, we carry so often unforgiveness within ourselves. Sometimes we are more aware of that than others. But let's be honest, forgiveness is one of the most difficult things to do as human beings. It must be possible, else Jesus would not have spoken in the way that he did about forgiveness. But he never said it would be easy, and for those of you that know what I'm talking about, you absolutely recognise that this subject is so close to the bone that even me bringing it up now kind of feels a little bit... I think the only way that we can forgive our brothers and sisters, the only way that we can forgive those around us genuinely is with an openness to God's spirit working in us and through us, giving us what we haven't got within ourselves to give very often. And genuine forgiveness, of course, is not cheap. God's forgiveness of us was incredibly costly, the most costly, Jesus' life. But, for for us, forgiveness is costly. And we we have to recognise that that isn't going to be easy. Particularly, without God's help, I'd say it's impossible. Is it one time or is it ongoing? There's all kinds of questions about forgiveness, which is maybe for a small group to chat through, possibly for another sermon. But let me say this. A friend of mine who's incredibly honest who said to me that um, he was struggling to forgive uh, his wife. His wife had had an affair and um, he was struggling to forgive her. And, and uh, he had, he said, look, I, 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 I'd said I forgive you. Yet sometimes, and this was years later, five, six years after the affair had happened and there had been some reconciliation between them. Five or six years, I wake up in a cold sweat, he said, and I look at her and I, I feel like I hate her. I can't, I've forgiven her. And we prayed. And there was this real sense of God saying in the midst of that scenario that forgiveness is not just a one-time spoken thing. That forgiveness is an ongoing thing. You don't very often just forgive once and that's it done. It'd be lovely if that phrase, forgive and forget, was true. For those that think that's in scripture, it's not. God does not forget your sins. He chooses not to remember them, and that's entirely different. There's an act of will that God employs in order for forgiveness to come. 
I think the same for us. Just as God is not absent-minded. So, it's difficult for us to forget when we've been so hurt. Yet, I believe that that's what we are called to do in this passage, in this particular parable. And there's something else. And let me kind of just draw this a little bit to a close now. There's something for us as a church. The context in which Jesus speaks this parable is thinking about a gathering of people, brothers and sisters, church members, as the NRSV would say. Believe me, as we travel around our churches, we see so many times that, for whatever reason, unforgiveness splits churches. The desire to forgive never meets the reality of that forgiveness in reconciliation. And churches are either held captive to that in chains, or worse still, fracture and split apart. So I say this to you guys, wonderful and united. The time to hear this is in the good times. Yeah. But don't allow a spirit of unforgiveness amongst yourselves. Deal with it when it happens. Seek reconciliation. Look, you're not going to agree with each other. When Almighty God gave us free wills, I think he knew that the possibility of humankind agreeing with each other was well and truly taken off the table at that point in time. Right, you are not going to agree with each other. Jesus never commanded you to. He commanded you to do something else. Love one another as he has loved you. That that is how the world will know that you're his disciples. He commanded it because it was possible. But he only knew it was possible with your help. So look... If you're wanting to be around people who agree with you on everything, you're going to end up in a church of one. But if you want to be around people that are working really, really hard, open to the Spirit of God to love each other, stick around Creech St. Michael Baptist Church. Because this is the community where people are committed to figuring out loving each other despite difference in our midst, to forgiving each other when we sin against each other, to not allowing this to fester. The picture's not clear, but what we've got there is communion, and this is what we come to. Now let me finish with this. But Jesus forgave us 70 times 7, an unlimited amount of time. And so now as we celebrate this meal together, Let's come recognising that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is like the what kind of God? The kingdom of God is like a community of people that loves each other as Christ loved the church, as Christ gave his life for the church. How should, should we love each other? Love one another as I have loved you says Jesus, as I have loved you. And let's celebrate as we come together as well that the God of heaven has forgiven us and commit ourselves to being a community that forgives each other. Amen.